Hello and welcome to ID Talk, answers from an infectious disease expert. I'm Dr. Sean Elliott, a pediatric infectious disease specialist with Tucson Medical Center, professor emeritus of pediatrics at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, and long-term contributor to the infectious diseases and immunizations topics at the Arizona chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. This podcast has been created to answer questions from our chapter's members about the COVID-19 pandemic and all other topics infectious disease and infection prevention related. And if you are tuning in from outside of Arizona, welcome. We're so glad to, to have you join us. So this is the second week of February 2024. Took a break for some prior engagements, including a trip to the CDC to talk about how we screen for congenital syphilis and other mother-baby uh, congenital infections. Uh, more about that in just a little bit. We have some excellent questions again this week, and we'll, we'll delve right into them. The first one has to do with measles. As we think about emerging or re-emerging vaccine-preventable infections, diseases. Unfortunately, we meet, need to count measles among those. The questioner asked, with measles being reported in multiple states, and that is true, what are some infection control steps we should take if we encounter a measles case? So first of all, what is the risk? Yes, there have been clusters of measles cases uh, all associated with, with point or so-called index patients uh, in various communities on both coasts uh, as well as scattered throughout the rest of the country. And these have to do with un- or under-vaccinated individuals uh, basically importing disease into a community, and then others who are at risk and are under or unvaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella, uh, who then develop disease. So certainly that is existing. There have been no local outbreaks yet so far here in Arizona, but it's really only a matter of time and sporadic cases can and, and likely will occur. Measles is one of the viruses uh, which is easily transmittable through fine aerosol uh, particles. So it, it is when we isolate a patient with measles, we use what is called airborne isolation protocol meaning not just for aerosol-generating procedures, but for hospitalization and any medical interactions with the patient, one is using the high particle masks, the N95 masks, and if one is not fit tested for those, then a papper or a hood. So this is the real deal. So think about measles isolation as you would tuberculosis and varicella as well, so chickenpox. So the challenge is to suspect, effectively suspect, patient who might have measles. And the clinical presentation uh, is classically described as the three C's, cough, coryza, conjunctivitis. The cough is a deep, loose, uh, almost chunky, not to be gross, but a chunky cough. It's described in the historic literature as a brassy cough. The best way I could describe it is to t think of patients you may have heard or experienced or their parents who have the so-called smoker's cough. So that deep racking, you, you swear something's coming up pretty soon, that would be a brassy cough. And, and the patient with measles will have at least the pediatric version of that. So think at least loose, rattly, productive sounding. The coryza is, is a mucopurulent nasal discharge, which unfortunately many times starts as just a clear nasal discharge. So every other patient right now in the entire country, and probably a good chunk of the world in the Northern Hemisphere, has the rhinovirus, RSV, adenovirus, influenza, clear rhinorrhea thing going on. Yeah, that unfortunately is how measles could start. But we're looking for that nasal discharge, which can progress to become mucopurulent along with the cough, 
Uh, and then the conjunctivitis is very much as you would suspect for the adenovirus. So the entire conjunctiva is injected, fairly prominently so, with a clear or sometimes purulent discharge. So very much to what you might expect for, for adenovirus. So obviously what I've described is still a fairly non-specific presentation. I've mentioned adenovirus a couple times. Yes, absolutely. Influenza could cause some of this. Mycoplasma could cause some of this. The three C's, therefore, while in the classic definition, are not necessarily going to help you think highly of measles uh, unless we can see the obvious coplic spots, which are wonderfully and, and tantalizingly described in all the textbooks with beautiful pictures of oral mucosa that look like maybe there's a faintly, slightly more pink patch in the posterior palate. However, the coplic spots often precede the onset of the other symptoms, the three C's, the fevers, the rash we'll talk about in a second, now precede those by, by even several days. Patient is still contagious at onset with the coplic spots, but it is rare for a patient who comes in symptomatic with measles for the coplic spots to be seen, unfortunately. The rash, as previously mentioned, the rash is what may help us think far more rigorously about the possibility of measles. So that patient coming in with the respiratory process, the three C's, et cetera, and so forth, who has a flat macular erythematous rash, which starts usually up around the head and moves downward. So the classic cranial to caudal or, or you know, head to tail progression, the textbooks will say, oh, as the rash is becoming prominent on the trunk, it is clearing on the face. Eh, take that with a bit of a grain of salt, because that, that's not a hard and fast rule. It may be that the rash is first noticed by the family on the face, and by the time they present to the medical attention, it's present face, trunk, abdomen, and it's starting to fade just a little bit on the face, maybe. So I'm still describing a somewhat nonspecific presentation, and the rashes described could also be things like erythema multiforme, as a hypersensitivity reaction to all sorts of other infectious agents, including the viruses we're seeing right now in the community, including for those of us in the Southwest, coccidioidomycosis, valley fever, and including mycoplasma and other things. So I guess the overall point, and, and I'm glad the questioner asked the question, is we need to have a very high suspicion and low threshold to consider measles and to isolate accordingly. So. Back to the question, what happens when that patient, three C's, progressive rash, fevers, presents um, unexpectedly or perhaps expectedly to the uh, a sick visit in the clinic or to the emergency department or just walks in the front door of your clinic, not even precedingly warning you of the symptoms? They need to be masked and a regular surgical loop mask will be sufficient for the patient. It's we, the healthcare providers, who then need to throw on the N95 mask, the goggles, the gowns, the gloves, as we are isolating that patient into a closed room, closed door. That's the best that honestly could be accomplished in most outpatient clinical settings, unless you happen to have a clinical space that has a, a room with, with reverse or negative airflow capability. If so, Yes, put the patient at that, close the door, just as you would in the hospital setting. In the hospital setting, patient presents to the emergency department. If your emergency department is equipped with negative airflow rooms, then yes, absolutely, that patient should be roomed 
immediately from triage into the negative airflow room and same isolation precautions you know, commence. Patient wears the mask, we put on the N95 and the gowns and the gloves and the goggles. And then if a patient for whatever reason is being admitted to hospital, either through the emergency department or as a direct admit, same things apply. That patient must be hospitalized in a negative airflow room and your infection prevention officer is notified. So those are the infection control straps that I would suggest. And I, I guess the takeaway message I would like to, to convey to you is suspect measles now a lot, meaning uh, hesitate, don't hesitate to, to err on the side of caution. And if there's a patient who may have measles, go ahead and do the isolation steps I just described to you. And then you can take the history. Are they vaccinated? Did they get both in their series? Are they still in the, the young childhood and, and not like a later t uh, adolescent? In which case, the younger children with two doses of the MMR should have very sufficient protection against measles, and they are far less likely to have measles. The older adolescent, as we've seen in outbreaks of mumps, may have had waning immunity and could be at risk for having measles. And so those are patients who should be isolated absolutely 100% uh, while then conducting further testing. Testing, if you're gonna look, well, the, really the only way that we can look at this point is serologically, sending off the antibody tests. Sending just an IgG against measles is not going to help because they may have had a dose or two doses of vaccine, which may or may not have been seroprotective. So sending immunoglobulins A, M, and G for measles is going to be the way to go. That's not going to be a rapid turnaround. These are going to be sent out. They'll be uh, handled typically by a central uh, commercial laboratory, and, and we will get our answer not in hours, but in days to a week or so. So as noted, isolate first, ask questions later, quite honestly, in that order, and, and have a very, very high degree of suspicion at a low threshold uh, for considering measles. So thank you for that question. Next question that uh, takes us back to COVID and specifically the JN.1 subvariant, which is currently the prominent, predominant circulating subvariant of Omicron, uh, SARS coronavirus 2. Last estimates, and this is now from a week, week and a half ago, are that the JN.1 subvariant is accounting for 90% and higher of all new isolates of, of COVID-19 or SARS coronavirus 2 infection in the United States. Yep, all right, great. That's kind of what happens when a new subvariant emerges and shows survival benefit, as has the JN.1. Fortunately, there is no additional, no new virulence or severity reported with the JN.1, even compared to recent past subvariants of Omicron. So it is still causing predominantly an upper respiratory tract infection with, in those patients at risk for, for severe pulmonary disease, some lower respiratory tract disease. My hospital currently has several patients with a history of underlying severe asthma, meaning uncontrolled medications with the asthma action plan in full force, who are admitted with SARS coronavirus 2 infection and requiring steroids and intravenous antiviral, the, the remdesivir that we use in hospitalized patients. So it is out there. It is certainly affecting and infecting pediatric patients in Arizona. Indications for the rest of the country are that the current mini-surge, the winter-predicted epidemic surge of COVID-19, has peaked, plateaued in other parts of the country, especially more toward the East Coast, and that those cases are starting to decline in the adult population. Kids, as always, follow the adult trends, but typically by several weeks or so. So I, I think it is likely for those of us on the, the western part of the country, and especially here in Arizona, California, Oregon, etc., that, that we will continue to see 
pediatric patients coming to urgent care emergency departments in the hospital with active COVID-19, but no more severe than others have, have been experiencing. So upper respiratory tract disease predominantly, some lower respiratory tract disease, meaning the bronchiolitis-like pneumonia, multifocal pneumonia-like presentation. For those with upper respiratory tract disease, still seeing the so-called COVID croup, so that very predominant cough, which is somewhat more refractory to our racemic epinephrine treatments and, and even actually our dexamethasone treatments than you would expect for the typical parainfluenzas one and three associated croup. By that I mean these patients with, with COVID croup are coming to our urgent care and emergency departments with a croup-like illness and they're requiring not just a single racemic epinephrine treatment but, but several and not just a single dose of, of oral IM or IV dexamethasone but several. If you have that patient who's a nasty croup or a refractory croup in front of you in the acute care setting, very likely that's going to be caused by JN.1 or some other subvariant of SARS-CoV-2. Fortunately, though, no additional risk of long COVID, of prolonged symptoms, any more than what we've encountered really for the last year plus with, with the Omicron subvariants in this country. Next question, how does the increased risk of respiratory distress syndrome in babies born to mothers with a history of COVID during pregnancy influence our approach to neonatal care. So this is, I think, more of the FYI, it's there, it's a risk. There's not much that we can do to prevent this other than to, to maximize vaccination strategies for our pregnant mothers to try and prevent this in the first place. I, I will say there has certainly been a, a mini surge or an increase in reported cases of uh, in utero fetal demise in babies uh, born, or actually not born, but, but you know, in utero with mothers who acquire uh, active COVID-19. And many of these are actually sort of later term, like around you know 20 weeks or so gestational age. So it of course is devastating to the mother, to the family, to the support system. And uh, even though the current available vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, uh, are effective in preventing severe disease, with COVID-19, they're still at best 50-60% protective in preventing all infection with COVID-19. And mothers, especially uh, after the first couple weeks of pregnancy, uh, are considered somewhat immunodeficient as they downregulate their Th1 immune response so that they don't reject the fetus as a foreign body. So COVID-19 in, in mothers is a bad thing. Big Duh there, Sean. Sorry about that. But other than trying to maintain vaccination strategy to prevent severe disease, there's not much that can be done other than careful isolation pro protocols for moms to try and avoid going to the, the crowded public arenas, etc. Once mom has had COVID-19 at a point during her pregnancy, then yes, babies born to those mothers, now in retrospect, do appear to be more likely to pick up every other single virus and cause bronchiolitis and to have either a reactive airway disease component to their disease, so wheezing associated with a respiratory infection, and or a more severe onset of symptoms associated with what would otherwise be a routine, fairly mild respiratory illness. So the so-called respiratory distress syndrome would suggest that these are babies with some degree of pulmonary damage associated with, with the maternal COVID-19 infection. Not preventable, but it certainly can be recognizable and that would be a baby to be flagged for more frequent preventative healthcare visits, to, to have conversations about signs, symptoms, risks, when to phone in for an urgent care visit or, or when to be referred to the emergency department. So other than having a heads up and, and flagging that baby and that mother-baby dyad for closer, uh, keeping them close to home, as it were, keeping them close to the practice, 
There, there's not much more that I, I could offer as a preventative healthcare step for babies born in that situation, unfortunately so. And it may be as things go forward and we get more experience with vaccination as a treatment, not just a preventative strategy, that there may be a way to mitigate that risk further. But at this point in time, that science and risk is a not much else we can do, watch, monitor, react when we need to. And then the, the final question, can I update us on the new revision from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, that was just released uh, January 29th, actually, related to the emergency use authorization for Paxlovid. So Paxlovid, again, that combination proteus inhibitor medication to treat active, acute, severe COVID-19. So just to sort of give the, the backstory, you may remember way back when, when Paxlovid was, was first uh, released by its manufacturer, uh, the FDA basically put in an emergency use authorization, allowing it to be used uh, in the treatment of adults and pediatric patients who were 12 years of age and older and at least 40 kilograms of weight and, and higher who were at risk for progression to severe COVID-19 and that risk included uh, hospitalization and or death. So that was a inclusive emergency use authorization. In May of 2023, uh, so last spring, the FDA approved Pfizer's uh, new drug application, an NDA, um, just because we love our initials, for Paxlovid. And the official reading of that new drug application for Paxlovid reads as the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults who are at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19, including hospitalization or death. What has happened now, and that this is really not a major impact on us as providers, uh, but very much so on pharmacies, the original stocks of Paxlovid that were released to pharmacies to fill prescriptions written by us for, for Paxlovid for 12 years of age and older meeting criteria, though the original stocks were under the original emergency use authorization. This most recent update by the FDA on January 29th is simply uh, expiring those original stocks by, what's the date, March 8th of 2024, after which the only available Paxlovid stocks will be those that are labeled under the new drug application. Same drug, same dosing, truly the same indications. And, and I'll, I'll read to you from the, the FDA statement, the new drug administration labeled Paxlovid, which is what will be available after March 8th, is for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in pediatric patients, 12 years of age and older, weighing at least 40 kilograms, who are at high risk for progression to severe disease, severe COVID-19, including hospitalization or death. So not really any differences there. Our prescribing uh, protocol, our risk strategy, the age, 12 years of age, the weight, 40 kilograms, are all identical. The only thing which changes are that there may be some stocks of Paxlovid currently existing in commercial pharmacies that will expire and, and be withdrawn by the FDA, and that the new labeled Paxlovid, same drug, same manufacturer, will then become the, the new stocks. So it, it sounded a lot more exciting than it truly is, and it truly does not affect us. We still have the same indications and still the same uh, dose strategies. So yay, great, wonderful. Thank you, though, for ask, or asking that question, just because there may be others, uh, as I, who, who saw that announcement, ooh, new indication, new, new FDA approval might it's actually not. So, yay. Going back to what I, I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, there was a uh, screening tool deployed by the CDC in partnership with our county, regional, uh, state uh, uh, health departments, with many community resources, with our, our tribal nations uh, reporting structures. It, it's the SETNESH, so Surveillance for Emerging 
in uh, emerging threats to mothers and babies with co-infection. And it's a, a, a network which is tracking these so that we can then drive interventions, research, preventative steps, et cetera, and so forth. So I had the opportunity on behalf of the AAP to travel to the CDC several weeks ago to give uh, basically input and feedback about the success of the SETNET and, and how it might be adapted for other emerging threats. The very productive meetings, super wonderful to, to be able to be there on behalf of AAP members, etc. And, and what is very clear is that as good as we are at getting public health reporting based on positive laboratory tests for any perinatal or congenital infectious threat, we are still missing a certain percentage of those patients who are not being reported because clinicians are not yet having an easy mode of access to the same network. So yes, congenital syphilis is supposed to be a reportable illness. It certainly is in Arizona. It, it is not 100% so in every other state uh, here in the United States. And, and so there, there are opportunities, of course, to increase our recruitment of numbers of epidemiology into the surveillance tool. But an important corollary to that is, why are we even asking this in the first place? Because we have seen and are continuing to see an explosion, and I don't use that term lightly, an explosion in numbers of congenitally transmitted syphilis, hepatitis C, and other infectious diseases an explosion. And many, many, many reasons for that, certainly in, in Arizona, and I imagine others tuning in from elsewhere will say the same thing. The typical phenotype, if you will, uh, of the mother delivering a baby uh, exposed to, to syphilis is that the mother is frequently uh, living shelterless, frequently has uh, polysubstance uh, addiction challenges, frequently has limited or no access to healthcare, period, other than the emergency department, and frequently has zero or minimal prenatal care visits. So typically this is a mother who may have been diagnosed with her pregnancy during an emergency department visit, disappeared from medical care, was found at that initial ED visit to be positive for syphilis, but never acquired or never given treatment because she was not able to be found, and then re-presents to the emergency department and or hospital, delivers the baby, and we then have a, a mother with active un- or undertreated syphilis, and baby at the very least would be considered exposed to and therefore at risk for congenital syphilis. Those are babies uh, who need full evaluation, looking for signs of active syphilitic disease, such as the periostitis and osteitis, the bone findings, hepatitis, anasarca, renal failure, uh, neurosyphilis, that all, all the things which we, we need to be doing for those babies born to mothers with un- or under-treated uh, active syphilis or latent syphilis. So this is happening in a far more frequent fashion than even in the, in the preceding several months. In fact, after returning from those meetings now just a little over two weeks ago in, in Atlanta, I've had over 25 consults myself for congenital syphilis, including four babies who had active disease and, and hospitalized and or expired from complications of that. So this is a very, very, very big deal, folks. And I, I would count this as I'm sure all of our, our health department experts as a thing of national concern and, and a not just emerging, an emerged threat. So what does that mean for us as practicing providers of pediatric health care? It means that we need to continue to advocate 
to our colleagues practicing uh, women's and, and uh, maternal care, so the obstetrician gynecologists, our primary care providers who care for adults, that we need to be screening not just the mothers, because it takes two to tango, but everyone for unknown, uh, untreated syphilis. We need to increase our level of awareness. We need to increase our screening. And the screening, depending on your hospital, may be a, a new rapid turnaround treponemal-specific antibody assay. Those, those are increasingly available and are highly sensitive and, and highly specific. Those patients who have then a positive treponemal antibody screen then we'll have a reflex RPR, the non-treponemal antibody titer, which I think most of us are familiar with. And uh, based on that RPR and the history of treatment or lack thereof, should drive then a evaluation and treatment decision both for the patient, the mother, the father, whomever, and then also for babies born to those mothers. So I, I wish to use this platform, this podcast, as a way to flag syphilis as a huge concern. And it's not just a simple treat the babies even though they're asymptomatic. It's treat the babies because we're seeing pediatric deaths related to congenital syphilis. And so this, this is a very big deal. Right along those same lines, and, and I, I've discussed this in, in recent previous podcasts, the risk for perinatal hepatitis C as well. Not an immediate threat, thank heaven, but certainly a long-term threat for those babies who will be asymptomatic and, and in many cases may have silent chronic active hepatitis C disease that would be unknown or unrecognized except for the new screening approach, which is to perform hepatitis C virus RNA-PCR testing at two to four months of life. Every single baby born to mother with known hepatitis C, regardless of whether she's in active disease or a history of, needs that screening uh, so that then they can be referred to further care and monitoring to see if they develop uh, hepatitis C active disease and potentially qualify for treatment beginning as early as three years of life. So folks, it's out there. There's a lot of badness out there, a lot of multiple uh, social determinants of, of health which are affecting these risks, many of which are in no way easy fixes, getting access to the mothers and the fathers who are practicing uh, high-risk encounters. But at least by increasing our awareness, by increasing our conversations of this, talking about it in your practice, talking about it in your professional organizations, um, talking about it at Grand Rounds, talking about it at Teaching Day with your learners, Get the message out, please. This is an emergency. So with that, and, and as a sort of broadcast of warning, I really do thank you for listening to ID Talk. Arizona AAP members can submit questions for future episodes to covid at azaap.org. The Arizona AAP would like to acknowledge the generous support of this podcast by the Arizona Department of Health Services through the Title V Maternal and Child Health Services Block Grant Funding. For more information and resources related to COVID-19 in Arizona or to learn how to become a member, please visit us at azaap.org. And in the meantime, and as always, I appreciate all of you for your service to the health of children here and everywhere in the country. And if you're tuning in from outside of the country, thank you for your service outside internationally as well. Please continue to fight the good fight. Keep those babies and the risk of syphilis and hepatitis C in mind and reach out with more questions as they occur to you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.